Welcome to Marissa's Wicked Word Nosh, a place to chow down on topics relevant to writers of all kinds. Hello, and welcome to Marissa's Wicked Word Nosh. I'm Marissa. And this is a weekly podcast in which I talk about a wide variety of writing-related topics. And sometimes I discuss a topic that isn't specifically a writing-related topic, but applies to a wide variety of areas that include writing. So it should definitely, or I say hopefully, be of interest to you as a writer. But if you're a non-writer who just happens to be listening in, I don't know how that would happen, but it can happen, Hopefully, you can take something from it as well. I like doing shows like this once in a while because it emphasizes that writing is about a lot more than just sitting down in front of your computer or manual typewriter, got to throw that in, and typing away. And that the more you know about a wide variety of topics, the more you can grow as a writer. And with recent events being what they are, This is a topic that I'm thinking maybe I should have already covered, but I'm sure we haven't heard the last about it, so why not bring it up now? I say start because there's so much that can be said about this topic. I'm planning to go over some basics this week, and then next week maybe go into some of the nuances that you're more likely to have questions about as a writer. So anyway... The topic is the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And before I go any further, I want to remind you, or if you are just tuning in for the first time, let you know that I'm not a lawyer. I did attend law school for two years, but I didn't finish. So I'm not an expert in this area by any means. But I have taken several graduate-level media law courses And if you take a media law course, you're going to spend a considerable amount of time studying the First Amendment. I hope you are anyway. Obviously, it's something journalists, print or otherwise, need to be aware of, as well as advertising copywriters, essayists and other nonfiction writers, novelists, songwriters. Oh, hell, just about all writers and artists need to have some idea of what it protects and doesn't protect. But that can be difficult to understand if you don't take some time to study it. And recent events show the dangers of people talking about issues that they or their constituents don't understand. So if this podcast can help clarify a few points on something so important for a few listeners, well... That's why I do this podcast in the first place. And as always, I'll include links in the show notes where you can learn more. And I sincerely hope you will check some of them out. So the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution states that, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances, end quote. Now, that may sound pretty straightforward to you, 
But I think one of the reasons it can be problematic is that I think when people look at it, they tend to focus on the rights aspect. That's my opinion. But based just on the protests I've seen for nearly a year now among people who don't want to wear masks or socially distance or whatnot because they feel their rights are being violated, there's a reason I'm of this opinion. When we look at the Constitution and see that we have rights that are named, and going back to what I was just saying, the freedom to go maskless during a pandemic is not among them, but that's all I'm going to say about that in this episode. But what I'm trying to get at is it's easy to hold those rights close to us and feel a desire to fight if we believe they're being violated. But I think that by focusing on rights, it can be easy for us to lose sight of who the potential violator is. And in the context of the U.S. Constitution, it's the government. It says Congress, but it really applies to all forms of government, including the federal government or a state or local government. Or it can be a school or a library. A lot of us have heard about school libraries and maybe even some community libraries banning books. And if you're like me, anytime you've heard about a book being banned, you are like, oh my God, I have to read that. But there have also been plenty of instances of student newspapers being disciplined because they printed articles on quote unquote controversial topics and a number of students have been disciplined for wearing quote-unquote controversial clothing items or accessories. As a statement from the American Civil Liberties Union, or ACLU, that I'm including a link to explains, quote-unquote protected speech includes, quote, symbolic speech, nonverbal expression whose purpose is to communicate ideas, end quote. So that's where clothing fits into this. And I'm going to add real quick that I'm not going to focus on any of the other rights mentioned in the First Amendment because this being a writing-related podcast, the speech clause is probably the one that you're most interested in hearing about. But I would definitely recommend that you keep in mind that the First Amendment does cover more than just speech. So... Based on the fact that the First Amendment protects against potential violations from government actors, you can see why former National Security Advisor John Bolton was allowed to publish his tell-all book called The Room Where It Happened last summer, even though the U.S. Department of Justice tried to block its publication. And even though it was published, Bolton was criticized for not getting the proper approval from national security officials. However, private businesses are not named as potential First Amendment violators, which basically means that if private companies don't want to allow a certain type of speech, they are under no First Amendment obligation to allow it. In other words, when Twitter and a host of other social media companies, private businesses, all of them, recently decided to ban a certain twice-impeached ex-president whose name I'm going to try not to mention more than I have to because, let's face it, 
I'm really sick of talking and thinking about him. That was not censorship under the First Amendment, even though said ex-president's son and a number of his followers claimed otherwise. In a similar vein, as a private entity, publishing company Simon & Schuster was within its rights when it decided not to publish an upcoming book by Senator Josh Hawley, who was widely, and in my opinion justifiably, criticized for challenging the results of the November election, even after the insurrection at the Capitol building earlier this month. Of course, Hawley complained that his First Amendment rights were being violated when Simon & Schuster made this announcement that they were not going to proceed with publishing the book. But since he's actually a lawyer, it's ridiculous for him to say that. First of all, Simon & Schuster's decision has nothing to do with the actual content of the book, the speech, or the expression. And, perhaps more importantly, Simon & Schuster aren't preventing him from publishing his book elsewhere. It's more like they're saying, dude, we don't like you and we don't want to be associated with you anymore. I'm not going to talk anymore about Hawley's book because, again, Simon & Schuster's decision really wasn't speech-based in the first place. But Twitter's decision to ban, ahem, a certain inflammatory individual was in large part content-based. And as a result, their actions have raised some issues even by those who acknowledge that Twitter had a right to do what it did. An article I'm including a link to from Brian L. Ott and Greg Dickinson called, here I have to mention his name because it's actually in the title of the article, Trump ban won't solve deeper Twitter problem, vitriol and violence that threaten democracy, states that although Twitter acted correctly by imposing this ban, it probably should have done it years ago rather than now and also suggests that due to the simplicity and immediacy that Twitter's structure encourages, the fact that certain reactionary types were able to use the platform to their advantage and build immense followings through it really should come as no surprise. But then, I think it could be counter-argued that it took social media companies as long to act as they did precisely because, in general, they believe that the public should have access to speech from prominent individuals, even when it proves controversial. In media law classes I've taken, that belief is known as the quote-unquote marketplace of ideas, under which it's argued that a wide variety of ideas should be expressed, and that the one that is truest will rise above all of the others. That's how it's supposed to work in theory anyway. However, because remarks made online shortly before the January 6th insurrection actually are thought to have helped incite that event, Twitter and Facebook, among others, acted as they did over the days that followed because they decided enough was enough, and that allowing it to continue might actually lead to more violence. As E.A. Gielton states in an article called What Kind of Speech Isn't Free Under the First Amendment, the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that speech that incites its listeners to riot, along with quote-unquote true threats and quote-unquote fighting words, 
along with several other categories, is not protected under the First Amendment. It never really was. Going back to what I was saying earlier about the First Amendment frequently being misunderstood, Yelton points out that Americans often see the protection of free speech rights as absolute, but in reality, that's never been the case. So if violent speech is not protected under the First Amendment, anyone who thinks that private companies like Twitter and Facebook are practicing quote-unquote censorship by not allowing them needs to do their research on the First Amendment. Although I do realize that individuals who need to study up are probably the ones who would never be caught with a First Amendment guide in their hands and will very likely continue to insist that their rights to free speech are being endangered. Unfortunately, that is a reality of the times that we're living in. So, when I talk about the First Amendment in next week's episode, I'm going to shy away from politics and focus on some examples that writers like you and me are more likely to think about in relation to our own work, or the works of others that we may read in a novel, magazine, or newspaper. I just wanted to bring up some current events in this episode because they're so well current, but also because these current events demonstrate two very important points about the free speech clause of the First Amendment that all writers should keep in mind going forward. Even though it bears repeating, neither one of these recent cases really involves the First Amendment. So the first thing I want you to keep in mind is that the First Amendment only applies to government entities and two, the First Amendment does not protect all types of speech. So let me know what you think. Email me at marissadellefarfalli at gmail.com. And follow me on Twitter, if you don't already, at at marissad13, and on Instagram at www.instagram.com slash marissadf13. Also, please check out my Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash marissadf. If you'd like to become my patron, I'd be more than happy to have you as one. For $1 a month, I will mention your name in an upcoming episode. And for $3 a month, I will mention your name in an upcoming episode. And I will give you access to two short bonus episodes every month. I have a brand new one out. Uh, it, it is on, um, it's my writer's review, meaning I don't look at content so much. I look more at style of two short books by Robert Olin Butler called Severance and Intercourse. I'm not going to be doing uh, a review of that like that for every bonus episode. I kind of I kind of do a lot of different types of episodes. I've only done four bonus episodes so far, but it's fun. And uh, if you'd like to check those out, uh, please check out my Patreon page. And I'd also really appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, as it'll help a lot more people find out about the show. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and for everyone who's given me feedback and supported the show, I am so grateful, and I really hope I've helped put some of what we've been hearing about in recent weeks into perspective. 
Even though the First Amendment is not something that can be fully explained in one podcast episode, and I doubt even two is enough, which means I could probably address it in even more episodes in the future. Probably not in a row, but the First Amendment is always relevant, so yeah, there's a lot there. For now, I'm going to leave you with a quote from legendary U.S. Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall that should clarify what we were talking about a little bit more. So Marshall said, quote, if the First Amendment means anything, it means that a state has no business telling a man sitting alone in his house what books he may read or what films he may watch, end quote. So by state, he means government, and by man, I think we can assume that he is referring to women as well as men. But again, the state, the government, that's what the First Amendment applies to. So on that note, stay safe and peace out. This podcast has been brought to you by Anchor, which is the easiest way to make a podcast. Go to anchor.fm for more info.